Welcome to Transformative Talk. Each episode is hosted by a different graduate student in Dr. Haddad's courses at the University of Texas in San Antonio. Join us today as we explore how educators can use critical social theories to transform themselves and their classrooms. Educators can get real and share real life experiences, near misses, and big little wins. This is Erin Sandrin, Tracy Herrera, and Betsy Sanchez, your host for this episode of Transformative Talk. In this episode, we are going to talk about the education debt. And so what we're going to do is we want to talk about different aspects of Gloria Lefton Billings' um, article, and it's called From the Achievement Gap to the Education Debt, Understanding Achievement in U.S. Schools. So we want to talk about kind of each of the types of debt that she talks about. And so let's explore this idea of what she was talking about when she's talking about the historical debt. And one thing that stuck out to me about Gloria Letson Billings' discussion about the historical debt is when she's talking about this idea of how historically the United States has done so many things to basically perpetuate or maintain this, this kind of servant class, if you will, and, and over time, that's led to this, um, really this debt for minority students. And I think we still see this playing out a lot in, in the educational experiences of students. And I think that, um, you know, the big question is, is, is how can we lessen the education debt after years and years worth of oppression and one of the things that comes to my mind and it's perhaps a little simplified is I think that we really need to not just kind of sweep these historical events under the rug but we need to be out in the open with them we need to acknowledge that these things have happened and here's how they're impacting people and they still keep impacting people and so uh, I think we need to be a little bit mindful about that. Tracy, what are your thoughts on the historical debt? I think thinking about it um, after the debt, after years and years of oppression, we need to take a look at our curriculum. It was focused really on white colonial history, expansionism, the manifest destiny. Like Lance Billings says, the beginning of African-American life in the United States of America began with a lack of education. She points out how like the Freedmen schools after emancipation started, they used secondhand cast off books and materials from white schools. That material had like a white narrative, a white gaze, the idea of institutional racism started there. This was the material that they were told to use, they were given to use, the, um, the voices in it were seen as progressive white American heroes instead of squatters on Native American and Mexican American lands. I feel that needs to be put out there more and we can change that as teachers by bringing in different authors or voices such as like Harriet Beecher Stowe, who in 1852 published her book, um, Uncle Tom's Cabin, mm -hmm. which if anyone can remember the history around that, it was right after the 1850 Compromise and the Fugitive Slave Act was in there. And this was really over popular sovereignty, which we do explain to students, but we don't go into that both sides had compassion. There was the white side and the North and the South side. There was both whites on both sides that had compassion towards this Fugitive Slave Act and books like that need to be brought in. Plus she's a female 
African-American and that voice gets lost that her book is still world renowned. And then you've got like Sojourner Truth, who also was an abolitionist and during the temperance movement, she was, her work was so well renowned that she had a meeting with President Abraham Lincoln in 1864, her speech. We studied it in college, but I don't see why the kids can't study it when they talk about scenic falls and the progressive movement, labor movement, human rights movement. Mm -hmm. Her voice, I think, what was it? I am a woman. What do you think, Betsy? I think the, the white people have more, white students have more privileged than color students. And uh, that their schools in white schools, they have more uh, supplies for, uh, more supplies for them to use than color people they used to have. Um, yeah, and so that kind of leads us into this next part. You know, Lansing Billings also mentions this idea of economic debt. And when she's talking about economic debt, she makes a really good point about the disparity or differences between different kinds of schools, um, as Betsy was pointing out. And in my own experience, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, I went to a school that was fairly upper class. It wasn't quite as upper echelon as some of the other schools uh, surrounding it necessarily. But, you know, I probably was able to have more resources than say a number of inner city schools. And so you can see that um, play out in many of our experiences. And just the relation between finances and also political and social power um, I just find that really interesting. So I think really to get back to this idea of, well, how can we kind of lessen this debt? I mean, one, we need to be informed about it. And I think that's first and foremost. And two, really think about how can we more equitably distribute our resources? Because there shouldn't be this case where one school is getting practically nothing and another school's having all these different advantages just because of the luck of where you live, so to speak. Um, and I know that, that that situation's a little bit more harsh, I guess, for um, different groups of people. Um, Tracy, what's your ideas on this? It brings to mind um, when Latson Billings was talking about the Chicago school that spent 8,482 annually on 87% black Latino population. And then the school next door, which was Highland Park, was 90% white, and it spent 17291 per pupil. It brings to mind for me that when LBJ passed the Elementary Secondary Act in 1965, the purpose was to provide additional resources for vulnerable students through new grants to districts. But these grants were block grants, and that means that the states decide where they go, and that breaks down through the districts. That added to unequal funding to all the school districts. And like when I took my kids out of one school and put them in another, we literally were in the same district. We just moved across town, still Northeast ISD, but the schools had smart boards in every room. My daughter was in third grade. She's talking about virtual field trips. My son's in the library in fifth grade working on computers. I mean, even when I went into school, I felt out of place and we came from 
just right near Fort Sam Hood, which you think would be a good space, but it wasn't. The schools were, were not funded. Kids were running around. They barely had any supplies. They were always asking parents to give money. I was completely shocked to see that there was this disparity just for moving across the street. You know, I couldn't believe that it was so underfunded, but how to fix it is another problem. I think it comes down to educators, policymakers, society saying we've had enough. Like this is a democracy. All of our children are citizens and we're not going to let the funding be split to where I get an advantage and you get a disadvantage. You know, even like at, like I was saying at Alamo Heights, when they took a field trip, they had whole grain chicken nuggets, which totally blew my mind because in all the times my kids have been in school, they've never been offered whole grain anything. I thought wasn't ketchup a vegetable like it got real even funny parodies about how underfunded the schools were but I had no idea that it was to the extent that you could cross the street and the kids next door get a better education with the same federal dollars. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't really think about I mean even something as simple as the food. Oh, the nutrition deficiencies alone, could you start with your brain power in the morning on what you eat, on what you put in your body? And they're, they're just not even giving them the advantage of nutrition. We will be back after a break to education depth and the American dream. Welcome back to this week's Transformative Talks. This is Tracy Herrera, Destiny Sanchez, and Aaron Sandrin, your host. Today we're going to talk about the socio-political gap, as in the civic process. In the Lancet Billings, it talks about the Voting Acts right in 1965 and the most successful part of the civil rights legislation ever adopted by the United States Supreme Court. But since then, I've learned that in an article by Matt Cohen, it talks about how more than 1,600 polling places have closed since the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013 with the Shelby County versus Holder case. It altered the requirement for certain states with a history of voter discrimination. They were supposed to pre-clear changes to any election rules with the federal government. However, after the decision, the states that had previously fallen under the jurisdiction passed tough for voting registrations act. Like in Texas, we got the voter ID law and it triggered a series of court battles, which closed 750 polls here in the state of Texas. State of Texas and Georgia have the highest county polling closures in the nation. This, to me, really hurt our minority community because they don't have cars. A lot of them don't have IDs. They don't even speak the language. They really have no way to get out and go vote at these new polling places. So it really hurts their civil processes, like Billing was talking about, how we have hindered their rights to even have a political voice in the society. So, what do you think, Erin? So, yeah, I mean, immediately when I was reading about the socio-political debt part, and she's talking about all these historical things that happened in order to limit participation in civic processes like the 15th Amendment um, and how we, we came up with, like, the Voting Rights Act to try to help with that. I, I immediately thought about what's been in the news more recently about um, the closing of polling places, particularly in places like Kentucky, and as you were saying, I mean, that definitely hurts certain populations in terms of not enabling them to take part really in these civic processes or they have to figure out another way. And some of these communities may not know how to do that. They may not know how to address that problem. And so you see this kind of power struggle, if you will, between uh, 
basic kind of civic rights you know, between the government and these communities. And so it, it, it's very eye-opening and very sad um, for me to kind of see those things. And I just really hope that we can find a way to address that. And I think, and I know this is kind of my overall point with this is that I, I think we need to really be out in the open with this. We need to uh, make sure that everyone knows what's going on. And I think we need to be more vocal about if we see something that's problematic, we need to say something and address it. Otherwise it's going to keep happening. And in order for fairness, equity, equality, we, we can't really let that happen. So um, Betsy, did you want to add anything to this? Yes, so I think that the achievement gap is one of the most talked about issues in the U.S. education. The term refers to the disparities in standardized test scores between black and white, Latino and white, the, most Im the recent immigrant and white students. This article argues that the focus on the gap is misplaced. So instead, we need to look at the education debt. Okay. And so another one in kind of finishing up this talk about the type of debt that she talks about, I know we wanted to mention the moral debt, which is kind of like the closing argument, if you will, of her, her um, speech, right? Because I know we read this as an article, but it's actually a speech. And she's really trying to tell people, specifically these researchers, like, hey, we need to do better, basically. We need to take a look at this and do what we know is right. We have to have our actions really match what we're saying we want to do, you know? And so really, if we're this democracy, we need to live up to our ideals. And if you were to ask me, I don't think we really are when we're doing things like excluding people potentially from voting, funding schools clearly differently. I don't think we're quite living up to that expectation yet. And so um, I think we have a long way to go. And, and again, I think we need to really analyze how can we try to increase equity and achieve equality more than what we're doing because right now. I feel like we're just kind of giving lip service to this idea and oh, it sounds good, this is what we wanna be, but our actions are kind of generally showing otherwise. Okay, Tracy, what do you think about this? It brings up to mind the quote when Billing says, moral debt reflects a disparity between what we know is right and what we actually do. For me, this meant like as teachers, we just need to tell the truth. Like you spend, 90% of the time alone with the kids. Yeah, you have curriculum, administrators, policymakers, teachers, everybody keeping their hand on the pulse of what children are told not to rock the boat, but facts are facts. And sometimes we need to just tell the truth. Like when they were talking about in the readings, it said General George Pratt assists that need to kill the Indians in order to save the man. That was like assimilation was institutionalized. But we could Across that we're coming up with telling kids examples of how like Native Americans helped in World War II with the code talkers. There's that book, a novel about the Navajo Marine from World War II by Joseph Brooks. 
you could bring that into world history. You could, I don't think you could bring it in Texas history, but you could bring it into US history and world history. Because not only does it talk about how the Navajo language was unbreakable and they used that code to win the war, but the book also goes into how he was told to assimilate. He had to cut his hair, change his name. He went to a, a school where he learned a whole new language. It was beaten out of him to assimilate. And yet these Native Americans are the ones that helped us win the war. So if we could just change the narrative, change the voices. And as teachers, we can bring in books and videos and documentaries and podcasts. There's even Native American podcasts where they talk about in modern times how this affects their culture. I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with bringing facts into the history as long as you're not having a political opinion. You're just asserting the truth about assimilation. Okay. I think that will help us fight the moral debt if teachers step up and just fight the power. And it's actually interesting that you bring that up because in U.S. history, we do teach about the Navajo Code Talkers, but we don't really get into that nitty-gritty area of like the assimilation aspect to it. We talk about assimilation in different contexts, but not necessarily with the Navajo Code Talkers. So that's uh, interesting point that you bring up that yeah we could highlight that because it's like you're seeing okay these are the good these people did but here's how they were treated at the same time yeah and they were also told in order to save the man he had to kill the indian but and that's just not true because without their native tongue we wouldn't have been able to have a code where that couldn't be broken mm -hmm. and it's interesting also um i forgot to mention this earlier but you know when you're talking about this idea of perspectives and, and taking an understanding of that I'm, it reminded me of currently the efforts to sort of kind of quash the curriculum a little bit in terms of not talking about things that depict the U.S. in a bad light mm -hmm. uh, things like not really talking about slavery or not talking about all these bad things we did and, and to purely talk about these kind of more patriotic things and I, I don't really feel like that does all that much good because it helps to really just silence all these voices and the experiences and they're very real experiences that need to be told and people need to be able to see all these different sides to these events yeah i mean i i, I remember you see that the image in your head of the manifest destiny the lady going across the prairie and she's holding the book and she's flying and they're all white but what you don't think of is all that was built on the back of, of colored and minority saviors of democracy. You even have like Juan Seguin who fought in Brownsville to save the, the Mexican population's identity when Americans were first coming in 1824. I tried to bring that up in a Texas history class and the teacher told me, well, no, we're not talking about that. And I was like, what are you talking about? That's, that's a hero for them to look at and see somebody who achieved. He might have stood up against America, but he was standing up for their national identity, which is what we tell them to bring to class nowadays. You know. right. What do you think, Betsy? So I found a quote online about college is not part of America. It's part of the American dream. It shouldn't be part of a national nightmare for families. Yeah. So college would be free, in other words. Mm -hmm. for lower income students mm -hmm. yeah and so that would definitely be kind of part of that sort of leveling playing field building more on these principles of equality and all that yeah um i think the next section we want to talk about is something that we did in class the 
privilege walk that we did. I, I don't think that I had ever done one of these before. I, I, the ideas sounded familiar to me, but I don't think I'd ever actually done one of these before. And so in case people are like, what is she talking about? Um, basically, we had these different statements read and if they applied to you, you had to on um, a digitized kind of, what do you call that? Like a scale sort of thing. You had to either like go one back or one forward, something like that. And the whole idea behind this is to kind of see where you end up in terms of uh, perhaps how maybe privileged or unprivileged you are. And there's other things that you can get out of that, but that was one of the ideas. And so we just kind of want to talk about some of our reactions and our thoughts to that. Um, I'll go ahead and, and start with that. But I'm not going to lie. I, I know that I'm very privileged. I, I will own that entirely. And I constantly feel like I, I need to check myself like every day and understand, okay, not everyone has my experience. Um, there are people that definitely have it a lot worse off than I do. And so I kind of have to check my mindset on it. And I think that the activity makes us think about, okay, how can we think about this in terms of our students and trying to think about, okay, what can they bring to the classroom? How can they help to enrich that? How can we sort of meet them halfway, if you will? Um, Tracy, what are your uh, thoughts and reactions to this? Activity? I think um, based on the walk, when you're talking about what you give to your students, it doesn't necessarily matter if you did like high or low on the score because even if you did low you teach our kids that they got bootstrapped mm -hmm. you know that's a texas saying pull yourself up by your bootstraps but like me i got a lower score but you know when i was younger i was very angry about it because we moved every six months stepdad was in construction so i was always left out of the school process there wasn't a school i went and even tried for and then the teachers they treated you the same way you don't try i'm not going to add you to it that caused such an achievement gap as, as I moved and moved and moved that by the time I got to where I could learn, it was something I had to do on my own. But I always had that sense of using my bootstraps, like not feel sorry for myself, not sit there. And I think that's something you can teach kids. Like even if you see a child who's lower on the achievement gap or owes an education debt, you can teach them that they got ways out of it based on their own personality, based on their own identity. You know, and, and as teachers, you're the ones to do that. I mean, my high school English teacher is the reason why I'm sitting here, because I was actually in freshman English and senior English at the same time, because one was critical writing and then one was like the creative writing. So I was pretty good at being creative. And I remember my senior English teacher said to the sophomore English teacher who said, oh, she'll never be anything. She said, well, she's already something to me. And I literally went home and I remember sitting at the kitchen table crying and writing this lady's paper. And I had no interest in school because I'd been just, just so connected for since my entire curriculum started. So by the time I got to my senior English, somebody cared. Somebody gave a voice to me that said, you matter. And it stuck with me. It took me a long time to still finish my degree because you grow up with learning deficiencies. You don't think you can do it. But I always had her voice in the back of my head. I still never forgot it. Even when I get to having my own kids in the classroom, the one thing I'm not going to do is tell them that because of where they are politically, historically, or socially, economically, they cannot succeed. Because I'm standing in front of them as a teacher who succeeded on getting all the way up there. So, you know. Right, absolutely. It's our job to yeah. help. But she, she sticks right in my head forever. So, what do you think, Betsy? 
Um, so when I was in high school, I felt like frustrated with this standardized test because I couldn't pass some of them and had to retake summer classes. Um, like, uh, people were like, would tell me like I will not make it through high school and mm -hmm. things like that. And it, it just makes me frustrated. And I feel like we should like remove the standardized test for the pre students are in high school, middle school, elementary. Mm -hmm. It's just something that doesn't like make sense. So you don't even learn anything from those exams. Mm -hmm. It's just a waste of time. Um, stressful. I don't. I don't like it. I don't like those exams. And I was from. I went from a public a private school to a public school. Okay. So it was so different. Mm -hmm. That's a hard to say. Right, and, and it's interesting how those kind of standardized tests, I mean, they're sort of used to really kind of implicate a lot of things about people. And it's just, it, it's really sad how we've become so much into emphasizing that versus the actual learning process, right? And the actual people behind who's, who are taking the test. And what about when they offer them in the different language? Right. When I was in middle school, I saw students had to take the standard test in a different language. So, I mean, they still, I mean, they were taught in English because it's immersion. So even to sit in front of the test now in Spanish, they should have had the option to have their class in Spanish, you know, mm -hmm. more of their culture in there. Mm -hmm. So I think the last thing that we wanted to talk about was tying this article into the idea of the American dream and this idea of are we too far into the education debt for the American dream to really be achieved? And Tracy, I'm going to um, ask you to answer this question. What are your thoughts on this? I don't think it's too late. I, I, I believe, yeah, when you come down from the administration level, it's a little bit harder. But like I was saying, when you start with the grassroots, with the teachers, with the parents and asking them, just even like asking them what, what can be done in their classroom to bring their culture in. Like I was talking in another class yesterday about playing like James Brown or Bob Dylan, like during breaks, like you got to serve somebody, you know, to teach these kids a little bit about politics and music and that style. And she was like, no, no, the parents would totally disagree. And you couldn't do that. Like your hands are tied. Well, why don't you ask them first? You know, I think some ground roots would be in there and would be useful. Yeah, and I, I don't think personally that we're too far into the education debt for it to be achieved. I think we have a better understanding now of kind of what should be done or what direction to go in at least and to acknowledge all of these issues. So I, I definitely think it's something that we can try to reduce, right, this education debt. And it's going to take time um, and a changing of many mindsets, but I, I do think that it's something that we can do, something we can achieve. Betsy, what do you think? Do you think we can close the gap? Yes, we can close the gap. With people like us? <laughs> mm. Yes. Definitely. To learn more about this topic, check out From the Achievement Gap to the Education Debt, Understanding Achievement in the U.S. Schools by Gloria Lanson Billings. That's all for this episode. Thank thanks for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do then share subscribe and and leave a review wherever you discover our show that's all for now but i will see you in the next episode for the transformative talk bye <laughs>